Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the Living Open podcast chill in theory, activated in reality, hot and unbothered with Yana Callan-Hicks. Yana is an LMFT. She uses she, her pronouns. She's a sex therapist specializing in LGBTQ plus kinky and non-monogamous relationships. She's also a consent, sex, and sexuality columnist and educator and her work really centers around the belief that pleasure-positive and consent-based sex ed can positively impact our lives and the world. And I believe that too. And I'm so grateful for the sex ed that I've been able to access as an adult with access to the internet (laughs) and friends and all those things. Um, But my sex ed as a kid was abstinence only literal trash and that had a big impact on my early sexual relationships um in a really negative way and maybe you can relate to that as well because i think there are so few of us who actually get um pleasure-based pleasure-centered consent-based sex education in our lives as kids um This episode is really about changing your relationship with sex and sexuality in a way that's meaningful and true for you, which I really appreciate. Yana, in this episode and in her book, is not talking about, like, this is what good sex is to me, so this is what good sex is to you, or, like, you know, how we um, can sometimes make what's true for us true for other people and project that onto them. Like, there's none of that happening. It's really about, like... um, creating a relationship with sex and sexuality that feels good to you. So we get into Yana's journey with pleasure, queerness, kink, polyamory, all the good stuff. Integrating sex ed facts with making our dreams about our sex lives and sexuality feel real and settled. Working with shame and other barriers from moving towards the sex lives that we want. Talking about sex with our sex partners shame monsters, attachment and sex, getting comfortable with our desires, shattering myths about good sex, meeting and not meeting our own personal ideals of sex, dealing with our own personal baggage around sex in our bodies, how to set big and small sexual goals that are aligned with your values, and integrating sex into your daily life if you want to and if you consider yourself a sexual person. I really love this episode. I love talking about sex, and there's so much that goes into sex for me, um, as you'll hear a little bit of in this episode, and I think for many of us, there's all of our baggage that we're carrying, there's desires that we're ashamed of, or desires that we've embraced, there's our religious histories, there's purity culture, there's attachment, there's like so much to it, um, and Yana's work is really cool, so I'm so happy we had this conversation, and that you're here listening to it. I'm not quite ready to get into our conversation yet because I have a very fun announcement. Um, If you follow me on Instagram or if you're on my newsletter list, then you already found this out last week. Um, 
slash maybe I said a little teaser in the podcast last week. I actually don't remember, but <laughs> I know I didn't give you all of this information, so I'm going to share it now, which is that my Substack is launched, it's live, it's here in the world, and it's called Joy Notes, and it's a twice-monthly newsletter about being stretched wide by beauty, grief, and the full spectrum of aliveness. So I'm just going to read you the welcome that I wrote for this newsletter, this little online publication where I'll be sharing essays and poems. Um, I decided to call the newsletter Joy Notes not because everything I write will be or is joyful, but because joy and pleasure and aliveness, creativity, curiosity, love, beauty, care are things that I orient towards. They are compasses for me and I'm really tired of being expected even by myself to perform 24-7 outrage and sadness and anger to be a good person, to be a radical person and I think I've landed in this place of like of course I'm sad, of course I'm angry, of course I'm grieving, afraid, anxious for personal reasons, collective reasons, a full spectrum of reasons. Um, But that's only one part of the story and it feels like a spell to name that the other part of the story is love. The other part of the story is why the world breaks my heart so much because I love it that much. The other part of the story is the pink orange sun sinking into the ocean. The other part of the story is my love's head on my chest, breathing in sync while I rub their back. It's dancing in July under the full moon and an entire gorgeous kaleidoscope cast of stars. It's laying in a hammock in the forest, watching the wind cascade through the leaves and the rain wash clean everything outside of your little tarp haven. It's my cat's warm, soft little body curled up like a little spoon into mine. It's laughing and cooking in a cabin in the mountains with my good friends. It's holding each other. It's sunrise swims in the ocean, bites of fresh, juicy summer peaches, smelling a rosemary bush on an evening walk through the city, lemon in your water, kissing magnolia petals floating down onto your blanket, reading a really good book, the smell of the forest, a road trip with the windows down and really good music playing. It's not bypassing or looking away, it's looking at everything that is here and making something beautiful. It's all the things we stay alive for. That's what I'm writing about in Joy Notes, all the things we stay alive for and how we get there, which also means writing about what is hard, what is heartbreaking, the messy and nonlinear process of healing and trauma healing from attachment to sexual violence to religion which is really what this podcast is about as well. (laughs) I bought a sweatshirt last year that says your interest in beauty is not trivial. And it's a saying that I really hold deeply now. Um, People say that the work of the artist and the writer is to document the human condition and to make the revolution irresistible. I really agree, and I think that part of that is reminding us what there is to fight for. Part of that for me is a reminder of all the beauty and gorgeousness that is here amidst every shard of glass, everything that would hurt us. And it feels a little bit like a particularly Libra assignment. So this 
newsletter, this joy notes, is a small attempt of one Libra, me, to take it on. You can expect from joy notes a free email every month. Um, paid subscribers will get one more email throughout the month with a new piece of writing. You can expect essays and poems on coming alive, healing, especially in relationship, working with anxious attachments, queerness, desire, creativity and process, evolving spirituality, curiosity, dying continually, reclamation, big feelings, accessing joy and beauty, learning to be in generative conflict, humanizing everyone, including ourselves, probably some love letters to sunsets, and more. You can also expect some occasional creative prompting Q&As and collages. Over the summer, I took a writing class with Cheryl Strayed where she shared E.B. White's quote, all that I ever hope to say in books, all that I ever hope to say is that I love the world. And I continue to return to, if not for loving the world and each other, what is it we are fighting for? When I think of what creates hope, what I'm wanting to build and create in the world, it's the capacity for all people to experience the joy, pleasure, love, beauty, goodness, magic that is very much here. Maybe you can relate, I don't know. And that's the opening welcome piece of writing for Joy Notes. And if you want to subscribe, I would love that. The first essay will be out in September, and if you subscribe at a paid tier, then you'll get two pieces of writing in September. You can find that at the link in the description or at joynotes.substack.com. That's all I have to share with you. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for being here through this nonlinear podcast journey. <laughs> Um, I really appreciate it. This podcast exists because of you. It's for me, but it's really for you. Um, and I'm happy that you're here. Please enjoy my conversation with Yana. So I always like to start the show by hearing about your journey. And I would love to hear about your journey to becoming a sex therapist, your journey with pleasure, queerness, non-monogamy, anything you feel like sharing that feels present. Um, that's got you to this moment that you're in right now? Um, man, those are all like overlapping journeys that are like, that's, I could go on and on about each one of those. Is we there one in particular? We love a, <laughs> like, we love a long-winded answer. Oh, okay, great. Whatever on this podcast. So like, yeah, I mean, I think like, to me, I feel like my work and my personal journey overlaps a lot, which is interesting because, I mean, it's not that interesting because I am a millennial. I'm an elder millennial technically, but I am a millennial. So, you know, we are a navel gazing generation, blah, blah, blah. But what I think is interesting about it is that as a therapist, I'm technically, right, traditional therapy training. I'm supposed to be this blank slate. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think that's the way modern therapy is going, especially with social media, especially because everybody can be Googled, et cetera. But I don't think that being a blank slate is actually therapeutically beneficial to people. Um, and so having my work 
come out of my organic interest in sexuality and sex education and how it affected my life and how it impacts like the people important to me and also how it impacts people that I work with professionally. Like it's all very sort of like noodly and blended together. And it's been interesting trying to find the correct balance between personal and professional in my work. Um, and so I feel like my, in terms of my journey, it feels like a, like, what do you call that? Not macrame. Is it macrame? Crochet. Crochet. <laughs> like it's like a bunch of threads that have somehow yeah. made it into this unifying place. But I, you know, if we really want to talk about my journey, it's like, I could say my journey started when I was like 14 and I started experiencing sex and was like, what the fuck is going on? Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Like everyone's like obsessed with sex, but also doesn't talk about sex. And like my peers, like we don't know what we're doing. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like cool to be sexual, but it's also like not cool. Apparently (laughs) it's like so confusing. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's kind of where it like really start, like my intellectual interest in like, what is this sex thing and why is it so loaded with like personal and political stuff? And like, what does it mean? Like, I was just always sort of fascinated by like the social aspect of it and the personal aspect of it. And then somehow I just like found a way to make that into a job. <laughs> That's like the shorthand version. Well done. <laughs> I do know, I do know that 17 year old me would look at me now, I'm 36, and be like, fuck yeah, we did it. Like, Mm -hmm. you have a cool job. And it's important for me to remember that when, like, the behind the scenes realities of what is challenging about anybody's job, like, there's a lot that people don't see about people's work. It's good for me to remember that I'm like, oh, I am living, I'm living the dream that I had when I was younger and I really needed myself you know that like phrase like be who you needed when you were younger I feel like I'm really doing that and I feel happy about that I don't know if I answered your question you answered my question and I love that I feel that (laughs) way too and that feels really good like oh good I don't know specifically in my job but in like my life and just like who I am and how Uh I've become myself I think that my younger self would be really proud and that feels good yeah that's awesome yeah when you're saying this about being like 14 it's just making me it's making my brain go to how like the places that I learned about sex and how fucking terrible it was I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about like Cosmo magazine and like older siblings who also didn't know what they were doing at all. It's just like what's passed around between friends and all the like misinformation that's coming from all these different places. Cause mm-hmm. I did not get actual sex ed. Um, yeah. And that feels really sad. And it feels yeah. like the work of like people like you and like Erica Smith and other sex educators now who are also like working with um adults is like trying to like remedy <laughs> that like that gap that happened for most of us a lot of us many mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. yeah I think that there's something interesting like so the reason I'm here right is that I wrote this book I'll plug it right now Please I wrote do. this book <laughs> called hot and unbothered how to think about talk about and have the sex you really want it will be out August 16th 
You can pre-order it now on my website, yonatalonhicks.com or anywhere you buy books. Link but, in the description. <laughs> link in the description. So when I was writing the book proposal part, which is like a whole beast in itself, but you have to do this marketing section. And the marketing section is like, who is your ideal audience for the book? And I was like, so my audience, and it's interesting because like Erica Smith, I think has a similar audience or like a lot of sex educators in my professional sort of like virtual field have a similar audience where like, when I was 14, I didn't have Google. Like I couldn't just like Google, like, what's a blowjob, right? I had to like ask my friends, you know, which is kind of like an amazing um, way to learn <laughs> about these things. But I couldn't just like hide by myself behind my phone and like explore this type of stuff and get information. Mm-hmm. Whether the internet has accurate information or not is like a different beast. <laughs> but I think now when you're thinking about like specific adult sex education and adult like working with adults around sex and sexuality, we have the info. Like we have, like we can Google like what is chlamydia uh, versus what is gonorrhea. Like we have that information, but we still are struggling really hard to like integrate what is like sexual facts with like what is sexual, um, like your sexual experience, right? Like your shame, what it means to you, what your desires are, like, how do you communicate those things to your partner? How do you unearth those things for yourself? Who can you talk to about this? How do you talk about it? Like, there's all these like personal integrative ways that we still don't quite get, which of course isn't our fault. Like there's so many, like coming back to the crochet, (laughs) there's so many threads that get crocheted into our understanding of our sex lives, whether it's like, like you're saying, like, a shitty sex ed history, social expectations, norms in your friend group, even like in the book, I talk about um, this idea of like sexual perfection and sexual imposter syndrome. So like, even like what I think sex should be like, we often will undercut ourselves with the belief that we can't do that thing for whatever reason. And so I think like the audience for the book, like already kind of knows factual things, but doesn't quite know how to make their dreams about sex and sexuality, like real or okay, or like feel settled about it. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. And that feels really true. I think that feels really true to also like two specific overlapping segments of people who listen to this podcast in which I also have these identities of queer people and also people who grew up religious and I think the shame like in our culture it's like it's not like sexual shame is only for queer folks and Uh people who grew up in religion but I think we get like an extra dose of it or like there's like a it's magnified or it's definitely present and Uh yeah I don't know is there anything you want to share about working with shame or like some of those other barriers that keep that like integration of facts with like your actual dream and moving towards that from happening Yeah. I think that like a lot of the time, I don't know. It's interesting. Like when I think about, what is it? It's like, I feel like when I think about shame, I sort of think about boundaries Mm. (laughs) and like the reason why, for some reason, what I'm thinking about, like what I was just talking about in terms of like knowing facts about sex versus knowing how to be a social sexual person. 
Mm. Right. I feel like the book is really talking about skills that it takes to be a social sexual person, meaning like, how do I relate to sex and sexuality, whether that's with myself or with other people or with the world. So like I would like, I write a sex column and people locally to me, like recognize me from the column. And so I would be at the grocery store and someone would be like, Hey, (laughs) I'm having this. Oh, you're that person that writes that sex column. I'd be like, that's me. And they'd be like, Oh, I'm having this sexual issue. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm like checking out my groceries and I'm like, bro, like, okay. Like send me an email, like make an appointment. Like I'm trying to like do my life here. And to me, it really speaks to the fact that we don't, we have such black and white boundaries around sex. Mm. that we don't know what to do when someone says, yes, I'm a safe person to talk to about this. We don't have a boundary gradient anymore. Mm. Now it's like, oh, I'm telling you about my wife's favorite sex position while you're buying apples, you know? And it's, and to me, that's like, that could be person to person. That person doesn't read social cues very well, maybe, but it's also, I think speaks to the idea that it's either like either sex is present here in this conversation or it isn't. And I don't know how to deal with a gray space where like, Mm -hmm. I could tell you, I would love to talk to you about my sexual issues. How do I make an appointment? That would be an appropriate way to talk about that versus let me overshare all of this stuff. Because now that I have the green light, I don't know how to moderate myself. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about shame, I think shame is like this boundary. It's not even a boundary. It's just like a freaking cement wall that people cannot, for a lot of it, can't even look at it. You know, like if you're thinking about purity culture recovery in particular, that wall is just like part of your scaffolding of your life. Like you're not even really noticing it, right? It's like as basic Mm -hmm. as a sidewalk. But I think once you do notice it and you're like, ah, shit, there's a wall, like there's stuff on the other side of this wall that I want. And I don't know how to get through this thing. It starts feeling very black and white. It's like either you are good. I was not raised religiously. So forgive me. I talk about religion so sloppily. (laughs) So either (laughs) it's like, either you're good at your religion or you're not right. (laughs) So it's like, you can't be both good at your religion and a sexual person Mm. or whatever, you know? So it's like becomes very black and white. And I think something that's a big gift to me personally, as a professional is I get to I have the green light to hear people talk about sex all day. And I have the green light to talk about sex and sexuality openly in a way that other people might not have because of my work. Like I regularly experience strangers coming into my office and dishing to me about sex. I have like the professional green light to ask them like within 20 minutes of us talking about their sexual history. And they usually feel comfortable telling me. And that I feel like is so interesting when you think about shame, because the silence element is huge, like without silence, shame dries up. And so like, if we can bust down that silence part, little by little, the shame gets less intense. But I just think we don't have the social sexual education around how to do this in a way that isn't either like the on switch is full blown on or the off switch is totally off. And I think that like the shame part then like snowballs because like, if I'm trying to bust through my shame by like telling somebody about my sexual issues when they're trying to buy apples and they set a boundary where they're like, please stop talking to me about this. Then the shame element comes back. And I'm like, Oh, I did this wrong. 
Yeah. Rather than there's like, there's a middle zone, right? Like you can be both talking about sex and sexuality and do it in a way that is appropriate. I think we just don't know how to do that. That's so interesting because it wasn't even on my radar that that's something that happens or I don't know. I feel like it's really easy with my friends to talk about sex in a way that feels good. So I like, I don't know, I guess I like forgot. Well, that's part of my issue too, right? It's like that, like, what's it called? That's like the fish in water effect where like the fish realize it's in water. Like, I feel like when I was writing the book, I was really like, you know, like who even needs this information? Like we all talk about this. We all know this. And like Uh, people close to me were like, no man, like you talk about this all day. Like you talk about this with your partners, but you don't, a lot of people don't. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. That's right. You know, and I think that it doesn't help that like my social circle tends to be pretty comfortable talking about sex. And then my social media feeds are all other sex educators. So I feel like I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? We all talk about this all the time, but that's just not true. It's very like on switch off switch. And I wish there was more of a gradient. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe we can talk about talking about sex specifically with people you're having sex with also because I feel like that is a related but also whole different thing that can feel like even more vulnerable and I feel like I did not know how to talk about sex with people I was having sex with until I started dating my current partner who is also a sex educator (laughs) and I was like wow this is what it feels like to have like clear and amazing communication about sex this feels so good I had no idea like I had literally no idea that talking about sex could be that way Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I've had that not to like toot my own horn but I've had that experience with people in my personal life where like yeah I'm just sort of doing my thing and like asking questions and telling them information about myself and having a conversation about sex that we're having (laughs) and they're like oh, I've never been asked this question before. Or like, oh, I've never like processed the sex that we just had, like while we're eating potato chips in your kitchen. Like this isn't my (laughs) standard way of doing things. And I'm like, oh, right. Like this, everyone has a different style. And I think that like, like you're saying, right with your partner, I'm assuming they took the lead in that Mm -hmm. conversation that I tell clients this a lot where I'm like, you can set the tone. Like you don't actually have to wait for the other person to be more vocal. You can actually be vocal and more often than not, the person might appreciate it. Like they're not gonna, they might be like you or some people that I've been with that are like, oh, this is a new experience for me. But most of the time people aren't like, let's not talk about it. You know what I mean? Oh, I was like, (laughs) wow, I've been waiting my whole sexual life. It's amazing. (laughs) But we're also waiting for the other person to initiate that, you know? And it's like, okay, look, if we all are just sitting here waiting, then like what? In the the book, I talk about this too, where it's like the like, no, I insist after you effect, where it's like you're holding the door open for somebody Mm -hmm. or you're like waiting for someone to take a turn at a stoplight in your car. And everyone's like, no, you go, no, you go, no, 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 you go. And it's like, okay, if we keep doing this, we're not going to go anywhere. Like (laughs) we have to do something. But I think that like, what's really interesting. And I talk about this in the book as well about like one-on-one or like one-on-many sexual connections is that it really activates so much of our 
base instinctual attachment and like animalistic brains where like we get really worried that if we say something or we like suggest something that we want to do or we share a desire that we have that it's going to like repulse the other person that it's going to not match up with the other person's thing and then we're incompatible with that person and that sharing that vulnerability confirms that we're not going to be okay as partners Mm. or it might confirm that the thing that I just spent a long time trying to be okay with desire wise actually isn't okay. And then my shame monster is back Mm. or it confirms that like sex is wrong or like that you made a mistake or you like fucked up in some way. And that, that means that you can't be together. So then our like abandonment buttons get pushed we like try to like, it's a very, very typical early stages in a relationship to sort of flatten your differences and highlight what's similar. And so we start doing that where it's like, we kind of shave down things that we think might not totally line up because we want to be connected to this person. Mm -hmm. And in reality, if you're talking about long-term success for sexual relationships or romantic relationships or any relationship, the idea is that you can be open about your differences and still feel connected, even though you are different people, because you are like, everybody is different. Like that symbiotic early stage is always temporary. So I think when we're thinking about talking to our partners about sex, the risk is so heightened because of all these other factors where we don't know how to talk about sex, period. (laughs) We like aren't taught how to talk about sex with people, Mm -hmm. especially if we don't know them very well. And we have this like attachment based, like biological alarm bell system that's going off. That's telling us that if this doesn't go well, then like we're fucked and like, we're not going to be like accepted into our like pack. And that's very like programmed, like raw emotional connection stuff that kind of goes back to your childhood because it's all attachment theory based. It's kind of wild how much goes into sex that we we know, but we don't talk about it enough. Oh, yeah. I think so much about sex, and it feels like more clear than ever to me now that so much about sex for me is about meeting attachment needs. And it's not only about that, um, but like in talking with like my partner about different things that like where there's like disconnection around sex or where there's like things aren't going the way that one of us wants it to go or whatever, something is, there's like some kind of disconnect happening. Um, It's like so much about attachment stuff for me. And so it's been talking about like, Oh, what kind of like, what is it about sex that meets attachment needs? How are we also meeting attachment needs in other ways that aren't just sex when there's like different levels of sexual desire and like, what kind of sex is meeting attachment needs? Cause like, for me, it's not like kinky sex doesn't really do that, but like mushy, I love you sex does. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like all the attachment things like go into it. And when you said alarm bells going off, I was like, yeah, that's exactly, that's yeah. exactly the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And cause I think like, really it's like, we are, we are at the end of the day, we're pack animals as human beings. So we don't do well in isolation, right? It's very well studied that we don't fare well separated from our people. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're sexually connected, it does like it fires off a lot of different things for a lot of people. Not everybody feels that way about sex, but it does like Mm -hmm. you could not be (laughs) physically closer, like your body, Mm -hmm. some body part 
is inside some other body part most of the time if we're talking about sex. That's pretty close. You know? <laughs> a close scenario. Not to mention the emotional stuff, the relational stuff, like mm-hmm. the acceptance, the desirability, like all of these messages that we get about what sex means about you to be sexually desired, to be sexually chosen, like all mm-hmm. this stuff is really heavy. Yeah. And if we're wanting to talk about sex in a way that like we're not sure how it's going to go, that's a big risk. That's a huge risk. If like the threat, right, is I could be outcast from my person or like this could mean that I'm not good. That's a really big risk. And I think when you're working with clients around sex and sexuality, and I talk about this in the book a lot, it's kind of about determining like, is that risk? actually real or is that like an overblown like historic alarm bell that's getting tripped up by the wrong thing Mm -hmm. yeah I think part of it for me has also been like learning just learning how to be okay with my desires and to like root into Mm -hmm. like this is okay and like even if like I share it with someone and that's really vulnerable and like they're squicked out by it or whatever there's like a weird feeling or they're not also into it it doesn't actually mean I'm bad it just right. that they're not into it also and that's totally okay yeah and I think that speaks to our baggage like if I'm like hey do you want pepperoni on your pizza um or should we get broccoli and you're like ew I don't like either one of those things let's get pineapple I'm not going to be like I'm a bad person you know because <laughs> like, I wanted pepperoni like I think like Yeah, it's so loaded to have a sexual difference. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right that if we get better at sort of like accepting um, differences in other people as being about them and not really necessarily about us, then like it would get a lot easier. Oh, yeah. I feel like half of my like emotional issues are about like me making something somebody said or did about me. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's so real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking about something else that you had in your little book blurb that I want to ask you about mm-hmm. um, that you talk about in the book and it's shattering myths about good sex. Oh Is yeah. Anything you want to say about that here? I'm like yeah. so curious. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the first couple of chapters of the book are dedicated to this idea of what good sex means and what good sex is and what we're sold it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the time when we think about good sex, we think about like simultaneous orgasms. We think about like that, like you mentioned Cosmo, I will say Cosmo has worked very hard to get with it. I think it's done a little bit better. They've done better, but our, you know, when we, <laughs> yeah, when we think about the Cosmo 20 years ago that we were reading or that I was reading as a teenager was like, uh-huh very much like tips to blow his mind and like pretzel positions that'll like, you know, whatever, like the secret key to unlock your whatever, whatever. Like there's this idea of good yeah. sex that it's some a skill that we go off, read a magazine about, build the skill on our own, and then one size fits all, apply it to all of our lovers. <laughs> all of my lovers are going to love this pretzel thing I learned in Cosmo. <laughs> it's going to blow their minds and I'm going to be the sexual champion. <laughs> And so like (laughs) this idea is that good sex is like a singular project that I get good at by myself and I do it at my lovers. (laughs) And that's especially true 
if I'm a man, if I'm like a cis man, that's, that's the message I'm sold is that I get really good at this. And then I just go ahead and apply it to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the idea, like when we talk about shattering those myths, it's like looking at like, what is my personal physical ability? What does my body look like? How does my body feel? What is my partner like? What is their body like? What can their body do? What do they want? What's my desire template? What's their desire template? Like my whole bag around that is that good sex is actually not technical skill and it's not book smarts. I think book smarts around sex can help. I think technical skill could maybe help, but it's actually a relational skill. And if you don't know how to talk about sex with your partner or relate to them in a way that makes conversation about desire and like consent and like really being with them in that sexual moment, the good sex, you're not going to hit the good sex bar because good sex is customized. So if you can't have the conversations it takes to be customized, you're not going to do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? So true. It's making me think about how before I had ever had sex with someone with a vulva I was like so anxious about like would I be bad at it like how do you have lesbian sex like what and I felt so nervous about it and then after I did I was like that was totally valid and that's fine but also it was so silly because it's literally just like talk like literally just Mm -hmm. talk like and of course you like learn different things like as you continue to have like different kinds of sex or whatever but it's not like oh I know how to like make this one partner have this kind of orgasm that they really like so then I know how to do that to everyone who has this body part it's like just not true at all so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all situation Mm -hmm. and I think that like again like cognitively we can understand that and then personally it's hard to break through because there's so many competing messages around what the good sex model is. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about this, like talk about this in the intro, and I talked about this in my TED talk, where it's like, usually at the beginning of workshops with adults or teenagers, I'll ask them like, you know, where did you learn about sex? And what did you learn? And most of the time we end up talking about learning about sex through porn. And it's like, okay, what does porn teach us about sex? Like, what do the people look like? What are they doing? How long does it take them to do it? You know, like, are they talking? No, they're usually never never talking. (laughs) And it's not that. And I think porn is very diverse genre. I definitely don't think like all porn is created equal. There's plenty of porn that's like working against that idea. And they are including conversation and they are including real bodies. But when we think about the average age of first porn exposure in the States is 11, If we think about an 11 year old Googling sex and what kind of porn they're going to find with like a basic Google, because they don't have porn literacy. You don't have porn literacy as an 11 year old. The stuff that you're going to see is very like white, thin women, big boobs, not a lot of hair, like big muscular dudes, like having this like jackhammer instant orgasm situation. They're not talking. And that's a very, very limited scope of sex. Yeah. You know, and so then we're kind of like, okay, well, where do I fit in there? Like, if that's good sex, then the sex my body can have, or what I look like, or what I want is bad. Like, I don't, I've met so many people who like, when they masturbate, they like to climax on their bellies, Mm -hmm. you know, to lie down on their bellies and like, 
hump a pillow or a toy or something. And that's how they like to get off. And even that they're like, oh, this is the only way I can do it. So bummer for everybody. And it's like, (laughs) and it's like, well, why? Because that you haven't seen that in enough porn or like, that's not the kind of sex you've been shown visually to be good or interesting or hot. And so you think that like, this is bad, but in reality, it's like, you know how to get yourself off and you're doing it. And like, that should be, that's the bar. Mm -hmm. I think like you figured out how to feel good. That's the bar. And I don't think that we're taught that that's the bar. Definitely not. (laughs) Definitely not. Have you read um, Jen Winston's book, Greedy? No. They have this story in there where they talk about them masturbating and they describe it as like a whale humping, like, something <laughs> that, like but it's also like on the belly and just like forceful and like them figuring out that like it's okay for, for them to uh-huh. So your story made me think about that. No, totally. I mean, like plenty of people like... And I'm sure like not to give away too much about my personal life and myself included wish that like the way that we had a climax looked like dainty and um, picturesque, <laughs> but it's not really how most people get off. You know? <laughs> so, like Here we are, like, let's get over it. You know? <laughs> yeah, and then when I think about that, I'm like, do I need my partner to be totally. picturesque when they come? And I'm like, no, no, not. I love how they are when they come. It's totally. So- I want my partner <laughs> to be like so unhinged in their pleasure that they black out and can't, I mean, not literally black out, but I want them to like black out in their self-perception. I don't want them to even uh-huh. be thinking about what it is they look like. That's what I want. Like nobody cares about, like no one's here painting you. Like, and like or maybe which I also well, maybe but like <laughs> in your body and like have a good time that's the yeah. bar and so I think like if we can't release ourselves from this very narrow box about what good sex should be we're always going to be comparing ourselves and holding ourselves back from what it is that we actually want and what we're actually capable of Yeah. And I think like what I was taught good sex is had literally nothing to do with me or my pleasure. What felt good for me, it was actually all about like good sex was sex that like made a that was sex that was good for a man and that would like make him love me or something. But it was Mm -hmm. like, I feel like I wasn't the way I learned about sex. It barely even had me as part of the equation. It was just Mm -hmm. totally oriented towards like the other person. And it was always super hetero. So like what a man would think of my body or what I could do for this person, which like, of course I want to do things for this person that I'm having sex with, but like, it was just like me, nothing, everything else about this other person. Mm -hmm. And that's so sad. Yeah. And I also think that there is a layer like, let's say people are like, yeah, the heteronormative ideal of sex. Like, I know that that's not the ideal, but then there's this other layer where it's like, what's our personal ideal. Mm. And like, maybe my personal ideal is like, I wish my climax looked prettier or like, I wish my partner and I were more synced up in what we wanted or like, whatever, what happens when we don't meet that ideal? Can we talk about it? How do we get through it? Like, is that okay? And I think that that's another layer of it, right? Like there's sort of like, I don't know. It's kind of like, yes, 
the patriarchy exists and is bad. I can cognitively understand that. (laughs) And then I also have my own real life baggage around that, that I'm dealing with like every day in ways that we might not necessarily pay much attention to because cognitively we're like, yeah, check. I got it. Patriarchy bad. And I think that happens in sex positivity culture now, which is like, yes, consent is good. Of course, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or like climax is not the answer. Like we got it. But I do think there are still little ways that that impacts us that we don't necessarily address. And I think that's the type of stuff that comes up in therapy a lot, which is like Mm -hmm. people's cognitive understanding of something versus their real life application of that thing and how it makes them personally feel. And I think that's part of, that's kind of like the the um, layout of the book is sort of like that bigger picture stuff. Like what is good sex? What does it mean? How did we learn this? And kind of narrows it down into like that personal work of like, what does this mean for me? How does this show up for me? How does this show up in my partnerships? How do I change my own relationship to sex and sexuality in a way that is very meaningful to me and like individualized? Does that make sense? Yeah, because it's so insidious and it will like morph and change along with you. Even as you're saying that, I'm like thinking of examples in my head where I'm like, oh, I'm not like oriented towards that like exact thing that I was taught, but oh, I'm still thinking in some way or like wishing that I could like come in a different way or like I'm comparing myself to like how orgasmic my partner is maybe and I'm not. So it's not like the same thing, but it's still the same thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think like I tell this story in the book too, where it's like I have I'm in this interesting position where people have a lot of my clients have come to my office by way of my sex column. So they have their own thoughts and projections about like what I am and who I am and what my own relationship to sex is. And so people will come in and be like, you know, I'm here because like, I just really want to know how you do it. Like, how do you get so comfortable talking about sex? Mm -hmm. and like being this way about sex. And I'm like, yes, I am comfortable talking about sex, but I'm still a person. Like I still have hangups talking to my partners about sex. I still have sexual insecurities. Like I still have partners that I can't sexually figure out. And it like makes me feel a certain way. Like I make mistakes. Like I, you know, all of this stuff, I'm not immune to it. The idea is that we can all learn the skills that it takes to navigate that stuff because your sex life is going to be an ongoing project. If you want to keep having sex your whole life, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to change, your partners are going to change, your bodies are going to change, like your health is going to change. And if you can't talk about that stuff and really dig into it or have the tools to do all of that, your sex life is going to suffer because it's not a stagnant situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think I just really appreciate this disconnection you're talking about between like okay we know it but then also maybe our bodies know a different thing totally (laughs) like it's not so simple as being Mm -hmm. like yes bad good whatever this is what I want and then our bodies can have a whole other different experience right I'm not just going to cognitively be like I'm chill with this and then like never have a complicated <laughs> feeling again. <laughs> I'm like theoretically, I'm chill about so many things. Oh yeah, me too. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a different thing in my body. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the last things I want to ask you before I ask the last, last question I ask on this podcast is 
um, about sexual goals. I saw yeah. this in your book blurb and I was like, oh, that's so interesting and fun. And I was like, what are my sexual goals? And I don't know. I'm wondering if there's anything that you want to leave people with about what that might mean or like something fun in quotes maybe to think about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is, um, well, first of all, the book itself is long as hell. It's like 460 pages, which was an accident because (laughs) I have never been spatially gifted and I'm writing my book on Google docs. And then I'm like, wait a minute. Pages of books are small. (laughs) They are my ditzy moment where I was like, oh, my book's going to be like 265. But in print, it's like 460. Anyway, the reason why it's so freaking long, first of all, my illustrator made beautiful illustrations that are in the book, well worth the page count. Second of all, there's a lot of worksheets. So in the worksheets, there's a lot of places where I encourage readers to set certain goals around certain themes. So like a theme might be like reducing your own sexual imposter syndrome, meaning like that feeling like maybe you can't achieve the sex of your dreams. Like you can't have the sex that you really want to have. And so like a goal might look like, okay, like what is your overarching goal might be like, I never want to feel imposter syndrome again. Okay, great. That's a huge goal. So like, what are the smaller ways that you can do, like take care of that, right? So a smaller way might be like, if a sexual encounter doesn't go the way that I hope that it would, I'm going to focus on what I've learned from it instead of beating myself up about how it didn't go well. That's a small goal. Or like if a goal is like, oh, I wish that my orgasm looked daintier. You can think like, does that goal really align with my larger principles? Which is like, I want to experience sex in a way that really works for me and is organic and authentic. So maybe my goal is, I want to feel okay about the fact that like, who knows what kind of faces I'm making. Like my goal is actually to let go of that and be more in in my body. And so how do I practice that? Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really lovely and just continues to be part of the conversation about how you and sex and relationships are evolving all the time. And maybe having sex for a while, your whole life or whatever, then Mm -hmm. there are always new areas to explore and to get more comfortable and yeah learn more about yourself and your partners too yeah it's an ongoing project yeah yeah I'm like I'm into the project it's it's good project well that's the thing it's like (laughs) this is fun you know like we forget that like sex is supposed to feel good and it's supposed to be fun and like it's not always that way but like that's a great overarching goal to have it's like Mm -hmm. we don't have to make working on our sex life be this like torturous drag like you can work on your sex life in ways that are really fun Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I want to ask you the last question I always ask on this show and based on our conversation before we started recording about polyamory I might know how you're going to answer it but the question is what does living open mean to you and can you hear that (laughs) okay wait say say the question again because the name of the show is living open Uh what does living open mean to you and what comes up when you hear that Uh uh-huh okay so fill everybody else in 
I was like, oh, this podcast is about polyamory because of the name living open. <laughs> a very fair assumption. It fully checks out. <laughs> yeah. And it also checks out because if people don't already know about my work, that's like a big chunk of my work. I work with non-monogamous partners a lot in my work. And I talk about non-monogamy a lot on my Instagram. So when someone that has a podcast called Living Open is like, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? I'm like, oh yeah, you're an open relationship podcast. Here I am ready to talk about polyamory. Um, So Living Open to me triggers thoughts about polyamory, but also I think in the context of like sex and sexuality, I think being open about sex and sexuality is really about integrating sex into your daily life instead of integrated or instead of kind of like exiling it to its own place. And I don't mean like daily life, like have sex every day, but I think it does mean like you are a sexual or not everyone is a sexual person, but if you are a sexual person, sexuality can be part of your everyday life. You can be a sexual person and still be a professional. You can still be a parent. You can still be like respectable. You can still be serious. Like there's all these ways that we have been taught socially to strip sexuality out of certain realms of our life. And I don't think that that does us any good. And I feel like to live open, it's sort of like, how do you make that integration more just like normalized and like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell people where they can connect with you, where they can find the book, all of the the good things they should know? Yes. Um, So my book is called Hot and Unbothered, How to Think About, Talk About, and Have the Sex You Really Want. It is being published by Harper Wave August 16th. You can get it anywhere you buy books. It's available for pre-order right now. Pre-ordering is encouraged. Um, I'm on Instagram all the time. My handle is at the underscore V spot, V like vagina. My website is yanatellenhicks.com. If you're a Vermont local, you are welcome to work with me um, as a therapist. And otherwise, that's me. I'm highly Googleable. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.